Hey, hello, how are you? This is a show for everyone else. Instead of going after top 1% of the world, we dedicate this podcast to celebrate the lives of the unsung heroes and self-made artists. What I look for in an idea for a book now is that blend of social science and practical application, good storytelling. Um, but the other thing that I try and do is use, specifically use social science to correct things that are, are common sense but are wrong, right? So creativity is a great example of a lot of stuff that what we do and what's common sense and the way we talk about it is actually counter to what we know from science, right? You can't have a purely egalitarian network where everybody's connected to everybody. You need clusters. For people to get better, they need some level of community. So for, for everything, there is balance. And so you need um, to be able to be bridging to other communities to find those new ideas, both to bring them to your cluster, but also to potentially know it's time for you to move. This is where I think a lot of people think it's sleazy and inauthentic and weird is they're trying to apply someone else's advice who's very different from them. And then they're experiencing that feeling of feeling not like themselves because they're literally pretending to be someone else by applying that other person's advice. It still is what you know and also who you know. And that's good news because you're in control of both of those things, right? The stories of that person that was just sort of born into this incredible network, et cetera, those are more rare than the stories of people figuring out that, okay, it's a matter of the community that I'm a part of and the network that I'm a part of, so I need to be intentional and take this seriously. Those stories are actually more common and they see that who you know as good news. And I think we all should. Hello, Phase World podcast listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in on a new episode of Phase World. If you're new to the show, welcome. I'm so thrilled that you are here. We're gaining a lot of new listeners, so I should sure introduce myself in the show. Hi, this is Fei Wu, and I'm the host of the show. We started Phase World Podcast in 2014. At the time, the goal was simple. We wanted to pick really interesting people and celebrate the stories of unsung heroes and self-made artists. Since then, I started my company in January 2016 called Phase World. I am a digital marketer and a freelancer. I absolutely love what I do. So in addition to these podcast episodes, I have also spent some time focusing on productivity, leadership, and generally how freelance works for people who are interested in learning more. And uh, recently, we've gone through some of the category changes, and our goal is to help you find episodes you will love quickly. So uh, if you're new to this, head on over to phaseworld.com forward slash podcast. We have six key topics. Have fun at your job, build a tribe, reflection and transitions, ideas that's bred, live your art, and finally, pay forward. So we try to categorize each episode under one to two categories at the most. And this episode you're about to hear with David Burkus will sure fall under ideas that's bred. So who's David? David Burkus is a best-selling author. 
a sought-after speaker, and his newest book, Friend of a Friend, which I'm a big, big fan of, offers new perspectives and tactics that work for you today on how to better network and build key connections. These insights are based on human behaviors and often are the ones that are overlooked and misunderstood. For example, turns out the low-hanging fruits are the connections you already have, the old friends. Social scientists call them weak ties or dormant ties. Within days of speaking with David, I started reaching out to my own network via LinkedIn, Facebook, and some are contacts on my phone. I received some responses right away, and most of them turned around within 24 hours. One woman even asked me, just reaching out and reconnect, Faye, that's, that's great. People aren't used to it yet because they haven't realized how important it is to actually keep in touch. So when you leave your job, some of your best connections and your friends at the time shouldn't just vanish with the job. Another quick announcement before we get started, Face World Podcast is now releasing new episodes every Friday. Yes, on Fridays, because some of our listeners mention the freedom they feel on Fridays, and that's when they would love to tune in and catch up on podcasts. So without further ado, please welcome David Burkus to the Face World Podcast. And remember, this is a two-part episode, and part two is available right now, immediately. So don't forget to keep listening at the end of this episode for part two with David as well. Much love. I'll see you at the end of the show. What I'm super impressed about by you, David, is that you've been running, you were running a podcast for about eight years slash eight seasons before I listened to the last episode, which you stopped in September last year. Yes. Yeah. 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 Eight, eight years, eight years and eight seasons, actually. Yeah. We were, I actually like to think this is, I have no real uh, credibility I can stand on in terms of podcasting in a world of people like Jordan or like Gimlet and Radio Lab and all of those folks. However, I'm pretty sure I was one of the first people to start using the season then episode numbering system as opposed to just podcast number 100 and whatever, right? So yeah, so it is, it's the eight is eight seasons. People ask me like, oh, did you do, you did did 800 something interviews? No, no, I did like 120, but it's just every year we change the season number. Um, Usually because between like Thanksgiving and New Year's, we just didn't do anything because it didn't make any sense to record, getting people, tracking people down to do episodes, that sort of stuff was just crazy. So, and then it, we will probably come back with a new show in September of that one, around one year after putting the other one on pause, we'll probably come back with something. It's just, as you can imagine, launching a book, gets so busy that you're like, I just can't do my show and then also do all, all this other stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you did talk about in your last episode of this, the idea of the sabbatical, which was much needed. How did that go? I feel I listened to all your TED Talks and all many of the, and not all the interviews, because there's so many. And I noticed people, so far people haven't really asked about the sabbatical and sort of that transition and, and process between September until the release of the new book in May, which is where we are in right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, it, it is actually, it's, it's funny you mentioned in the context of the TED Talks and stuff, because by far in under new management, the idea that got the most traction was the salary transparency and that kind of stuff. However, the one I wish for people's working career would get the most traction is that sabbaticals idea. And I would say the whole 
really the whole process of launching this this book because it's such a different topic has been like a sabbatical from um, under new management. The, the first thing we did in September was basically nothing um, for for a while. Um, maybe actually not really for a while, probably about three weeks. And then we went into... I, I tried my hand at a virtual summit. It was the third time actually I've done a virtual, which is essentially a, a collection of video interviews, which are very different than audio interviews because you have to worry about so much more and editing after the fact is so much harder. Um, but I kind of wanted to play around with that and see. And really, it was a way to explore what do people think when they think about networks. It was called the Super Connector Summit. And the whole idea was to, to gain a bunch of people that are speaking in this space, but also learn about what are people thinking, feeling, acting when they think about connections, relationships, networks, communities, all of that kind of stuff. And that was sort of the precursor to, okay, now we have a better idea of how to, how to launch this new book, Friend of a Friend. So you know, it wasn't a sabbatical in the sense of we took a little bit of time to do sort of nothing. And then we got right back to work, but on a very different project. And the irony is that now we're almost you know, less than a year, more than six months. Uh, and I don't know, I, I think whatever project follows this new book, Friend of a Friend, will also be in line with that networks, communities, relationships, connections, that sort of thing. That's awesome. I mean, I've been doing digital marketing for uh, over a decade at this point and something I feel truly passionate about from design development to user experience. And I was really impressed by your site and just how clean it is and how the main call to actions is and, you know, I want to be creative and, you know, in this case, I want a better network. So I think it drives to all three of your books. And was that intentional? At yeah, I mean, actually, it was. So it's funny. Most I had nothing to do with most of the design of the site. Um, I work with uh, Joseph Henson and his team at Outthink Group to to do the site. However, one of the things I wanted to tell them, you know, in 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 website design right now and in marketing, etc., one of the things that's really popular is that sort of above the fold call to action. But one thing really bugged me, which is that almost all of them, you look on almost every sort of personal branded site, there's an above the fold get this thing, right? And then there's an, a, a box that you're supposed to type your email address into, right? And I think that's a little weird right off the bat to be like, hi, give me your email address before we decide whatever. So I wanted to do something a little different in that regard. And then the other thing that happens is that I'm one of those writers that has sort of intellectual ADHD, right? The first book was on creativity. The next was on leadership and management philosophies. The next was on networking. Like, You can't just have one p- little piece that calls people to action to get this one specific download. So... That's that was the reason for um, for divvying up like that, and you click on those, and it's not actually it doesn't take you to the book. It takes you to a bunch of resources um, that are either mentioned in a book or are sort of derived from one of the prior books. Um, and then we get into okay, so now you've seen what's actually beneficial to you. So now we, you know, would you join the newsletter community and all that kind of stuff? But yeah, that was so it was sort of my take, maybe not being a traditional marketing guy on a, I think a better way to do that above the fold call to action. The, I'm, I'm, it was, the irony is that the opening phrase is that, how can I help you? And it's also a question that I hate when people ask in the context of a networking relationship or like you meet somebody for the first time and you ask that. Um, the difference is I only have three ways that I can help you. So I feel a little bit more comfortable asking that to people who drop by the website. Yeah, for sure. I think finding your niche is important. And clearly for you as you're writing more books, I think your your niche also expands quite a bit. But you know, I was going to say the way I read your, I have not read the first two books, but just by reading, um, you know, a uh, friend of friend it, it intrigues me to read the others one, the other ones as well. 
But how did you come up with the name? Because I know that some, sometimes that's the most daunting thing to do. It's like all these people from around the world, like all these yeah. give you ideas on that. <laughs> so t- titles are agony. Um, they really are. Uh, so the only, I should say the of the three books that I've written, the only book that kept the exact same title from when we pitched it to when it actually went to print was The Miss of Creativity, my first book. Um, and truthfully, I think that has more to do with the fact that that book was published through John Wiley and Sons and they're kind of a hands-off publisher um, to some extent. So I, I kind of feel like it was because nobody bothered to push back on me. Under New Management was originally had the incredibly terrible name of post-cubicle era. So the, the idea was that we everybody talks about the industrial era and then the, the post-industrial era. And, but the post-industrial era was the knowledge work era where everybody was in cubicles. And so this was like the idea of more uh, giving more autonomy to workers, letting them be able to... So that's where we... It was a terrible name. It was awful. Um, but it worked for the proposal. And then we, we signed that deal and they wanted to change it to something like throw out the rule book or some very... I don't know. I didn't like it all that much. And we just we went back and forth and back and forth and probably burned through 200 suggestions before we settled on under new management. Now, why do I tell you all of that? Because friend of a friend was a little bit easier in that process. Still agony. When I uh, originally pitched the idea to Houghton, uh, the working title was How We Connect, which I actually still really like. That was the, the idea was to, to write a book that is about how we all connect to each other. But the other big idea in the book is that it specifically takes all of these insights from network science and targets networking advice and shows what's wrong about a lot of networking advice, what you should be doing instead, etc. And so we needed something a little punchier than just an explanation of how we connect. So for the longest time, we switched it. We, we also knew that we wanted to sort of uh, hang the book on a peg that already existed in networking lingo. So it had to already be a phrase. So for the longest time, we were going with who you know. But the book was literally going to be called Who You Know. And the whole idea was that who you know is important. Um, it really is. And it's not bad news. It, who you know is actually good news because you are in control of who you know. The problem with that one is that it was a very like... It was a very sort of salesy or career only. And there were insights in the book that go beyond that. So we really struggled with how do we make this applicable to kind of everybody. But the fortunate thing is we didn't have to go around 200 times like we did with the new management because we knew like, okay, it has to already be a phrase that's in people's lingo when they talk about connections and relationships and all that sort of stuff. So we only had like 10 things to go with. And finally, we ended up settling on friend of a friend. I, all of that to say... It was also not my idea. It came from not just not my acquisitions editor, but the publisher of the imprint. So his boss, basically. And I remember actually when it came when it came down and they threw it out and they said, Oh yeah, he, he really likes friend of a friend. And I said, What do you mean by he really likes? Do you mean he would really uh, he likes this suggestion and we have to do a really good job selling him on something else? Or do you mean the conversation's over and this is this is gonna be the book title? Um, and so it was, that was it. It was his idea. And we basically decided not to push back on it. And then as, as I started rewriting the introduction, the conclusion, and really working on how are we going to market this book and what are the phrases going to be, I started to really actually love it. Um, but yeah, no, it, it works on so many levels that I'm just fortunate there were people, I don't know, smarter than me, better than me at picking titles that, that second time around because it was still agony. But it was so much easier than the first time.
Hi there, this is Fei Wu, and you're listening to the Face World podcast. Today on the show, welcome David Burkus, who is a best-selling author, and his new book, Friend of a Friend, offers new perspectives and tactics that will work for you today on how to better network and build key connections. I, I do have a lot of questions for the book, but somehow this whole behind the scenes it has always been what I find most fascinating. Uh, clearly, you have publishers and a, a team of people, editors there, but you also clearly have a web team, you know, creating, I don't know, lead gen resources and people in social media. Like, what does David's team look like? I, I'm curious. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, not to steal a concept from friend of a friend, which is actually stolen from a different book. It it really is kind of a team of teams, right? And my job is just to be um, at the center, coordinating all these different teams. So, to, I mean, to give you an idea, so I have actually a relatively simplistic business model. Um, I'm not this uh, Tony Robbins like figure with eleven different businesses and all of this stuff around this person. There's me as a writer, and then me as a writer fuels uh, primarily you know advances and royalties from writing and speaking. And then there's a little bit of additional revenue from different stuff like online courses or other ways that things have been licensed. But it's really not... It's not a focus. It's just something we sort of experimented with. Didn't really work out the way I'd like. So in that, there's essentially three teams to keep all on one page. So the first on the writing side, there's a team in terms of my literary agent and the people that also work and support him and things like foreign rights and what have you. Um, And then... Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, where I'm sort of a house author with them. So the the editor, the publisher, and all of the people that are at HMH are usually working with me from book to book. It's this, it's kind of the same team from book to book. So that's the writing team. But then a totally different team is the team that represents me for speaking. And that's uh, a company called Brightsight Group is my primary agency that I work with. There's four or five people on that team that work with me. And then like you said, there's the web design team. And that's kind of a mix of contractors that... Um, we hire and then also um, people that kind of advise. The big thing with my career is that my my role model, my template, the person that I'm trying to emulate, I'm, I'm unabashed of saying is Daniel Pink, right? I, I joke often that I'm trying to be the next, next Daniel Pink. He's like 20 years older than me. So someone will beat me to that title. And whoever that is, I'm going to be the next her. But one of the reasons I said, okay, if this is the business model I like, this is the type of books that I want to write, I want to go figure out who's on his team. And so at the time, his marketing guys, web presence, all of that was a, a guy named Tim Grawl, who is a really good friend of mine now. Um, but Tim actually sold the web design company that he started and worked with Dan in. So Tim sort of advises it. But then I also work with the company he sold because they're the people that have all of his sort of intellectual property, are familiar with his method. He sold it to his employees. It's like, it should be one team, but it's actually a team of multiple different people. So you have three... If you picture it like a hub, you have three spokes coming out from that. But then even then, there's people who are not technically employed by that company who are also on the team, right? Wow. I think what you're explaining is really quite interesting. But you know, Daniel Pink actually came up very recently. If I remember correctly, he's a gentleman who does like this one to two minute video every day. Yeah, he did. Well, not every day, but he does the Pink cast about every week or so. Yeah, yeah. And that was... And you know, what's funny is that stemmed from a... Like there was a time where the author business model was awesome. You, you went off and you hid in a cave for like three years and you wrote a book and then you went out and marketed the book for a year or two. And then you went back into your cave and wrote the next one. And there was so much kind of, there were so few people doing it compared to now. I mean, when I published my first book, there were only 2 million books listed on amazon.com. Now there are eight, right? So just in that time frame alone, we had this huge... But um, so back in that era, you didn't really need that many people on your team and you didn't need to have a regular sort of presence. But 
over time, because of actually people like you said, Gary V, JLD, all of those sort of folks, you realize that to stay sort of relevant now, you need to have at least some piece of regular dripped content that your fans are enjoying. So he and I remember having a conversation with, with him about this at his house, talking about how is he running his newsletter. And it used to just be recommendations of articles that he liked and what have you. And we talked a lot about this Pinkcast idea, short kind of 90 second to two minute videos with tips that go out. But it's basically his way of, of kind of trying to still hide in the cave while also having a little bit of content because you do have to sort of stay top of mind. Um, what, what, is your origin, what is your origin story when it comes to publishing? Three books already, working on the fourth and a podcast for eight years. You, you study creative writing in college. and um, but, but what was the, the first... How did the first book become a book? How did you get the contract? You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we, I was... I mean, I grew up thinking I was going to be a writer, right? So I grew, actually grew up in an in a artistic family. So my brother was a musician, had was always in a band or multiple bands, right? My sister was in a musical theater, still actually works. And, uh, and I was the writer in the family, right? So we each had our discipline. We didn't compete, but we each had this sort of artistic discipline. Except when I was a kid, <clears throat> writer meant essentially that you were a fiction writer, right? I went to college thinking that. And the big existential question when you're 18 years old and you want to get involved in writing is, am I going to be James Patterson or Ernest Hemingway, right? Am I going to be like poor but brilliant or am I going to be rich and a sellout, right? And no idea that there was this whole world of nonfiction outside of like textbooks, right? So then when I'm in college and you start to get exposed to more genres, I was in college when uh, The Tipping Point actually came out. And The Tipping Point changed my life, not because there's all of that many amazing things in it. And actually, a lot of the science is wrong. But what changed my life about it was the fact that here was a person who was an incredible storyteller, every bit as good as a literary genius in terms of novelist, etc. in Gladwell, but was also writing about social science and things that were a little bit more practical, useful, interesting, that affected people's everyday lives. That was the first time I'd ever encountered a book like that. And that made me think like, wow, okay, this is actually what I want to do. So uh, unfortunately, there was only about a semester, a year and a half, like three semesters left in college. So there wasn't too much time to like switch and study, suddenly study psychology and all this other stuff. So uh, I graduated. I went to um, graduate school for organizational psychology. The, the thing that is off of my like LinkedIn bio and all that sort of stuff that I think people have to know is that I also got married. I got married the day after college graduation. Uh, which I don't recommend. Not because I didn't... It just It's a logistical nightmare because you've got like all of this graduation stuff and then you've also got to slap together a wedding. But we did that because my wife was going to medical school three months later. So we wanted like maximal amount of time as a married couple before I was only ever going to see her at, like, at night, right? Um, so I went, I, went to, I, I went to work and I went to graduate school um, nights and weekends pretty much right off the bat to study organizational psychology with this whole idea that I'm going to write books in this genre. And I, so I did that. And, and after two years of that, I got bored because I graduated, got a master's degree and still had two years left of my wife's med school. So I got bored again. So I went back to school and started pursuing a doctorate. And it was, it was during the, the doctoral work that I got really deep into innovation in particular and actually was doing my, my dissertation on... It was a qualitative research dissertation on what are the stories that presumably non-creative companies tell about the process and what are the stories that you know, industrial design firms and ad firms and those sort of things talk about the creative process. So that then became sort of the myth of creativity. Really, in the end, the only stuff 
that's in the midst of creativity that was in the dissertation was the literature review section. That we basically got... I was also writing for a bunch of different sites. Uh, the biggest one was I wrote for 99U back when that was like the site for creative professionals. And so I was writing for that. And that's what led to the first kind of couple emails from a literary agent who also represented Scott Barry Kaufman and Heidi Grant Halverson and a bunch of people who wrote for 99U. And at the time, sort of the only book that we that was ready, the only idea that was like we could turn around in a short period of time was the stuff from this dissertation. So that became the miss of creativity. I don't know that I intentionally wanted to start with a book around creativity and innovation. Most of what I, what I look for in an idea for a book now is that blend of social science and practical application, good storytelling. Um, but the other thing that I try and do is use specifically use social science to correct things that are, are common sense but are wrong, right? So creativity is a great example of a lot of stuff that what we do and what's common sense and the way we talk about it is actually counter to what we know from science, right? Under new management was sort of the same way. It was praising all of these counterintuitive management practices through psychology to show you these are actually a better idea than what best practices are. Hi there, it's me again. I want to thank you very much for listening to this episode, and I hope you were able to learn a few things. If you enjoyed what you heard, it would be hugely helpful if you could subscribe to the Face World podcast. It literally takes seconds. If you're on your mobile phone, just search for Face World podcast in the podcast app on iPhone or an Android app such as Podcast Addict and click subscribe. All new episodes will be delivered to you automatically. Thanks so much for your support.